Good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for coming out this evening, and I want to welcome our online audience as well. I'm Barbara Peters from The Poison Pen. I haven't met many of you before, but thank you so much for coming. Um, we do a really spiffy newsletter, so if you have a good time tonight, you might want to sign up at the front desk, and then we will write to you on a regular basis. And we probably do, what, five events a week? So there's usually an opportunity to see an author do something fun. Um, at least once a week, right? But tonight we have two very special guests who've never been here before. So um, I'd like to to meet Catherine Lasky, who's immediately on my right in her fancy jacket. I dressed for Santa Fe. I want you to see, or for Abiquiu, right? Yeah, I did. Yeah. Right. And over there is Anna Reyes, and this is her first book, House, The House in the Pines. And we always we always try to go a little bit farther for debut authors because you never know which one of them is going to turn into a stellar author. And I often I often point out to people that I fought with a publisher to get Delia Owens here um, because they, they weren't wanting to tour her, but I convinced them that we could sell enough books to get her here. There were me and one other person came. The book has been on a bestseller list for how many years now? So you never know. And if you don't come when a debut author comes, you never can say, I was there. <laughs> you just can't do it. So I encourage you to do that. Um, Anna's book is also the Reese Witherspoon um, January book of the month, right? So congratulations on that. It's very exciting. But I'm going to start with Catherine. I'm going to do this alphabetically because that seems fair. Um, so we're going to start with Catherine. Lasky comes before Reyes, right? Um, and I absolutely love her book called Light on Bone. I thought I knew a lot about Georgia O'Keeffe. My husband and I have been back and forth in Santa Fe for 35 years. He was there for 30 years in college, been to Abiquiu, hung out in Shama, been all over. And it turns out that all I really knew about Georgia O'Keeffe was her time in New Mexico. And Catherine's book, while it's in New Mexico, really tells you about Georgia O'Keeffe and Alfred Stieglitz's life before, huge amount before. Mm -hmm. Much of it was really scandalous, wasn't it? Absolutely. So, what got you interested? It's, it's, it's intriguing to construct a mystery novel off a real person, because then you have to be faithful to the person, but you can make stuff up. Yeah. Well, what got me interested? Actually, um, when I was in college, I took a lot of art history. I was an English major, but I think I could have been an art history major. And when I graduated from college, my mom said, let's do, I was from Indiana, um, let's do a trip to New York and celebrate your graduation. I'm going to get show tickets and we'll go to museums. So first day in New York, I can remember standing with my mom outside the hotel and she says, now the first thing we're going to do is we're going to the Met because there's a wonderful Georgia O'Keeffe exhibit there. And I said, eh. I've never, I've never, I never really liked George O'Keefe, to which my mother said, I think I should get a rebate on your education. <laughs> and so she, we went, and I realized I had never seen a George O'Keefe painting in person. Ah. And I just fell into it. It was the most visceral experience I've ever had in um, an art museum. So that was the beginning of my fascination with her. And then about 15, 20 years ago, and I went out and I went to Abiquiu and all that, um, I wrote a children's book, because that's what I mostly do, is children's books. And I, I had an idea for a children's book. A, uh, it was just a uh, picture book. Picture books are really short. They have about maybe a thousand words at the most. And I thought, I just want to do a day in the life of Georgia O'Keeffe because I'd read a lot about her. I knew she got up at dawn. Uh, she'd go up to the rooftop, watch the sunrise, come down, have a cup of tea, and then she'd walk out in the desert to maybe paint, or she'd go later in her Model A Ford, where she had a whole little art studio set up in the back so she could uh, paint during the hottest time of the day if she wanted to. So I loved her day. 
I just loved it. I love what she ate. I did the first research was then. And then I thought, I think she'd make a great amateur sleuth because she's looking at the world differently from, uh, you know, a police detective or anything like that. So that's sort of how it began. And it was just so much fun to research. Well, it really, um, it's very exciting to read it. It feels um, in many ways like, like a gossip sheet or something. Because Stieglitz was, um, he was a bounder. He was a great, he was a great photographer and all the rest of it. But he would have been hell to be married to. Oh, yes. <laughs> I mean, uh, um, and, and one of the things, I started really researching her. And I, well, first of all, I've always loved historical fiction. I've, I've written a lot of it for kids. And I thought the 1930s, well, the 1930s has always been a, a favorite historical period for me. I mean, um, I, I found it fascinating because of what was going on in the world. But for Georgia, a lot of things had happened to her around that time. And she and Stiglitz, he was having a very public affair with uh, a woman. And um, he had also forced George into having an abortion several years before, mm -hmm. which she was against, but she succumbed. And she also that same year, not as the abortion, but 1933-34, she had another, she started thinking about that a lot. And, you know, he's having this affair. And then she got this commission. She won a contest, actually, to do a mural at, um, Rockefeller Center in the ladies room and she had always wanted to do a mural this was the era of sort of uh, Diego Rivera right. and all of that and he thought this was not a good idea at all because they weren't paying her enough but she wanted to do it and she went ahead and did it but they hadn't prepared the wall right and it started disintegrating on her mid-painting and so she had three reasons to have, very good reasons to have a nervous breakdown. She was really regretting the abortion. She was horrified by this affair her husband was having, and then this. And so she actually uh, was put in a mental ward, a doctor's hospital, for three months in New York. Mm -hmm. And when she came out, she decided to go to um, New Mexico. And it was a healing experience for her. And you know what? That people have been doing that ever since. If you spend any time in Santa Fe, you are constantly meeting people, <coughs> excuse me, who have come from somewhere else in order to heal. Um, so it's a big industry yeah. in Santa Fe for sure. Anyway, let's leave it there for a minute, and let's go over here and talk to Anna. We'll go back and forth. So, Anna, one of the reasons I was so entranced with your book um, is that I think you had a truly original idea. I don't run into them all that often. I mean, it's wonderful the way people treat. And a, a feature, in fact, that of crime fiction is to do new things with established tropes and established structures. But you really winged it out there. <laughs> I love that. Um, there were a number of debuts out this month, and I picked Anna's because... The originality was the, like the deciding factor. I love it. So what gave you, we can't talk about it, unfortunately, <laughs> or we're in the whole book, but um, what what prompted you to, to write? Let's start with why did you decide to write a mystery as opposed to any other kind of fiction? Well, I had a, a mystery. Is this working? I think so. I, I had a mystery at the heart of the book from the start. It was always about this house, and I won't say what about this house, but this house was always there. It always had this, there's something very specific about it that kind of constitutes the twist. Um, but I hadn't written it as a thriller originally. It was, it was my first book. So I didn't really have a grasp of all the different tropes and rules that go into writing a thriller. Um, but as time went on and I revised it and, and redrafted it and went through multiple drafts, it became more and more of a thriller. 
Um, and what I love about writing thrillers is there's a set of rules that anybody can draw from of tools. Um, you know, the red herring, the ticking clock, foreshadowing. There's all these very specific things that you can use to turn your story into a thriller. And I think that's kind of what I did. It, it wasn't always a thriller, but it became that over the course of drafting. You know, I think for a first time author that there's a lot of comfort in having a structure that exists so you don't have to make everything up. I talked to an author this afternoon, the Janice Hallett I mentioned, and she's telling she told her first book in emails back and forth. And everybody thought that was original. And then I remind everybody that the very first novel published in English called Pamela by Samuel Richardson was in fact an epistolary novel because nobody really knew how to tell a story since nobody had written a novel before. Yeah. And if you tell it in in emails or letters, which are the equivalent, you can have multiple narrator voices. They can all talk to you in first person. Uh, you have a time frame because the letters move back and forth. You have a structure for the story. Yeah. And you know, so what I that's what I meant when I say I love it when I see people doing a modern twist on something that, you know, has existed forever. So I'm not surprised that you ended up with a thriller because it does help you tell the story that you wanted to tell. Yeah, and I think you're right. There is something comforting about that because it kind of gives you a container. You know, it's like you ha you could write anything and you have this blank page staring back at you, which can be daunting. Um, so to have these, you know, tried and true tropes that you can rely on is, is very comforting for a first-time writer. So give us your pitch for the book, since we oh, can't sure. say a huge amount about it. What, yeah. what do you want to say? Um, so this is a book that's a thriller, and it's about a young woman um, who's in her mid-20s, and she's trying to move on after a difficult past, and she comes upon a YouTube video that's gone viral, and the video, um, she features her first boyfriend, um, a man she hasn't heard from or talked to in years, sitting across from a young woman at the diner, a diner, and the young woman drops dead, and he hasn't touched her. There's no obvious motive. There's no obvious um, method. And yet our main character, Maya, is convinced that he killed her. So it's not so much of a whodunit as a um, how done it, <laughs> and did he really do it, or, or is she losing her mind? Um, so you have the unreliable narrator um, who's trying to figure out how something like this could have happened. Um, and that's, that's the main premise. Well, let's talk about names for a minute. You already had names because you're talking real people. But, you know, names have, have weight. They have freight. You know, you all probably know some at least one name that you don't really love, probably because you knew somebody you didn't particularly like that had the name. For me, it's Frank. I apologize. Oh. I apologize <laughs> if anyone yeah. here is Frank. I'm sorry. But nonetheless, Frank got me going because that is the name of the boyfriend, right? In the yes, book. How did she land on Frank is his name? It's so funny that you say that because I was looking for a name that was a little bit menacing and I arrived at Frank. So I think maybe there's just something about that name that many people probably have this association. There's probably really nice Franks out there and I don't mean them, <laughs> don't mean to offend them, but there is something menacing about that name to me too. Well, you see, but it's all how you feel, you know, because yeah. other people may love it. Um, for example, our beautiful puppy here with her fabulous hairdo, her name, her name is Kyrie. She just had a haircut, so she looks quite different than she did before. <laughs> and somehow or other, an exotic name like Kyrie really fits an exotic puppy, right? If yeah. you haven't seen her, don't She miss knows her. you're talking about her. She you can does. see her. <laughs> <laughs> she can actually dance. So. <laughs> but anyway, you know, it's so interesting that the, what we, you know, names mean so much to us and in different ways. What's the name of your heroine? Maya. Maya, right? Yes. And that didn't have a particular, I just really like that name. So I went through several different names as I was, as I was beginning to write or planning out the book. Um, and that was the name I settled on because I, I just, I liked it. it. It felt right. But isn't there, a, in her background, isn't there a, a, a Central American? That so too. Maya really fits her yeah. backstory. Yeah, that really was part of it too. To no, yeah. I, I was just saying, it's, I love how you do the center. Central American background stuff and oh. wove it in. So. Thank you. Yeah, Maya definitely was part of that too. So yeah, thanks for for pointing that out. Notice that we're talking all around the plot because if we talk about it, we'll ruin it for yeah. you. But yeah. that's how these events go. Um, all right, I'm going to come back to Georgia because um, let's let's first say why did you call it Light on Bone? Because there's a wonderful explanation in the book for the title, and I think. And I've read this from several reviews of Catherine's book, that only an artist could actually have written Light on Bone. 
it takes an artist's eye and an artist's sensitivity to do the gorgeous landscape writing. Because one of the things about this book that just is mind-blowing is the way she writes about northern New Mexico. I mean, it is truly beautiful. Oh, thank you. Uh, well, it first of all, I always have a terrible time with titles. And my husband over here usually thinks them up for oh. me. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. You have to blame you, right? But yeah, yeah this is but, a great title. Uh, but I, I, I write the book. I can come up with a title. That's easy. But on this one, I came up with it right off the bat. Before I'd written a word, I, when I decided to write, I'm going to call it Light on Bone, because uh, there's the obvious, all those bone pictures she does that where the bones are either down in the desert sand and they're they're mostly in um, full daylight actually, mm -hmm. and uh, but then there's this sort of the more metaphorical thing of she went out there to heal herself, and actually she was sort of following the light. I know that sounds corny. I am not a born again Christian or anything like that, but it's I felt it was her journey toward light. And um, I guess that's why I chose it. But it is interesting because she and her husband Stiglitz used to always go to, um, what is it, Lake George, which is that in the Adirondacks? I can't even yeah, remember. Is that in Upper New York? Yeah, Upper New York. So, uh, and her whole palette was different mm -hmm. at Lake George. It was sort of I mean, the, the paintings are gorgeous, you know, but it was um, sort of muddy, green, stuff like that. And she painted in this little thing to get away from the hordes of Stiglitzes that were in the main house where she couldn't, and they were always doing things like playing charades or all things that George O'Keefe probably would be totally disgusted with. And she was, and she wrote about that a lot. Um, but she, uh, you, you really saw the palette change. And I actually took this book of George O'Keefe paintings around the corner to a friend of ours who's a really good artist. And he said, well, she was painting indoors all the time. And he said, I would bet through glass. I don't even think she opened the window there. And I thought, well, that's really interesting. Mm -hmm. So it just seemed light on bone was, was the way to go. What flashed into my mind was one of the steer's heads, you know, the cow heads. Yeah. And the way the light shines through the, you know, the eyes of yeah. the skeleton. I actually met her um, because um, she did uh, two or three posters for the Santa Fe Opera, which I have been a member of for forever. And um, and it, she was, you know, she lived to be almost 100. She lived in Abiquiu. Uh, she had a, and she died when? In the late 90s, I think. Pretty sure. No, I think it was late 80s she died. Well, we could look it up. Anyway, she lived to be really old. I'm really old, so it all worked out. Um, well, actually, when you said that about the 1930s, I was born in 1940, and I congratulated myself for decades that I had missed the 1930s because they were so awful, and now here we are all over again in yeah. the 1930s. I just could hardly believe it. But anyway, she was um, her bone structure was extraordinary. She had cheekbones that were like blades. I mean, you could cut yourself on her cheekbones. Um, and when you met her, you know, you were really aware of that. So that there were many reasons why um, your title, I thought, was fascinating. And you know, for both of you, this is going to be my night to talk about me, but too bad. Um, when, I was, when I was in grade school in Winneck, Illinois, there was, we had a school library, and there was a, a like a raised platform above the main floor with the railing and it was all boarded over so we thought it was incredibly daring in fourth grade you know to go behind the wooden platform and we thought we were going to find amazing things so what it actually was was a Diego Rivera fresco that had been painted this is a very wealthy North Shore suburb of Chicago and it had become politically incorrect. Oh god. And so they covered it up and you know we we would go back and and you know it's not ordinary artwork. 
So, you know, here we were, these little kids running back and forth, looking up at the Diego Rivera and wondering. I didn't know for years afterward who he was or why it was there or anything, but it always made kind of a impression on me. Oh, well, that's so neat. It is, right. So let's go back to you and talk about Guatemala. Or, no, was it, is it Guatemala? Guatemala it is. Yeah. Okay, right country. All right, good. Yeah. <laughs> So um, my main character is half Guatemalan, as am I. So it felt very natural to write about her her um, sort of relationship to Guatemala because she knows less about her um, that side of her culture than I do. But I could really relate to her desire to know more and to go to Guatemala, but to have these um, stories that she's been told about the Civil War and the danger that's there mm -hmm. and the danger that's there now as a result of the aftermath of the Civil War. So my character um, was sort of dis discouraged from going to Guatemala. She grew up hearing about it. She had She had this idea of it in her mind. Um, but when she went there, it was not what she had expected. You know, it's, it's never when you go to a place that you've imagined, it never really matches up with, with your expectations. Um, so writing about that um, just felt very natural as a part of her backstory and helped explain some of the trauma that she um, was raised with. Even if she hadn't been there, you know, I think that having roots in a colonized place is going to, you know, it's going to affect you in ways that you, you can't really anticipate. So how important, I should ask you both this, how important is backstory to your characters? You know, you have to start them in a particular place and moment to get the story going. Yeah. And then it's a skill to go back and weave in the backstory without, you know, just like an info dump. So, yeah. Um, you know. You want to start? Sure, I'll start, although I know you have a lot more <laughs> experience. But this is something I learned as I was writing the first book was um, to... To, 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 like you're saying, not do an information dump, yeah. but to find a way to weave it in so that it feels natural <clears throat> and also to think about what does the reader need to know and when. So if there's a piece of backstory that you really want to get in there, but it doesn't make sense in chapter one, two or three, um, to just trust the reader knows as much as they need to know and to wait to the to the point when it becomes important to the story, but to not try to rush it, just get it in when you need it. Um, and that, that takes a lot of trial and error. So I'm still, I'm still learning that. Um, and, and I think that's, that's a big part of, of, uh, of writer's journey is figuring out how to do that with grace. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I write so many drafts of a book and I try to keep that in mind in the beginning drafts about backstory, but it's something you get a feel. For. So I'm on draft 10 now of a, a new book and there'll be at least 10 more drafts but it's in those subsequent drafts that I start unearthing the back story mm -hmm. uh, because especially I find it particularly good when you want to deepen a moment emotionally and let's see there's one I can think of in the George O'Keefe you know, I, I did so much research and I read a lot of her letters and there was this one thing she said that was so beautiful. She came from originally Sun Prairie, Wisconsin. And she kept talking about the soil there, how beautiful it was. It was going, and she said, I wanted to eat it when I was a baby. I wanted to eat it. And I thought, that's just a wonderful moment. And sure enough, I found the right place to put it in, you know. So there's probably a half a dozen of those in that book, but you have to kind of be patient. It's not something you can rush. When you get to a point and you might say to yourself, oh, I've been blabbing on about this plot and this person, time to pause here, go a little bit deeper. That's really very, very well put. And you know, for you, it seemed to me, because you're talking about real people and you've done research, part of the Part of the difficulty would be not putting too much of it in. You have to pick the perfect yeah. things to go. Yeah, in. yeah, yeah. You, I mean, you were just making stuff up, so you know it was it was easier for you. But yeah. um, I think it's a real challenge whenever you're writing something where there are real people and real history, to not to overload it with. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm very fond of author notes. You can put all that stuff in the back of the book for the truly dedicated reader that wants yeah. to go there. Yeah, but anyhow, so that's. Um, sort of how I do backstory stuff.
But why don't you like to ask each other, Anna, that you've you've had a chance to at least read some of the book on the yeah. plane? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I read. I have read this, um, and I really enjoyed it. And so I think my question, uh, or what intrigues me so much about reading this, is that you were able to look at a crime through an artist's eyes, and I thought that was really interesting. In that you this all tracked with what I know of George, which isn't very much of Georgia O'Keeffe is that she would focus on the shadows. Like there's one part where oh, yeah. she, she notices the the shadow of a hat and that shadow sort of helps her figure out a clue. And that's very different from how, you know, a typical detective would, would unearth clues. They're not looking at it like an artist. So I was very interested in the way that you thought of how would this particular person being an artist, how would she approach a crime? So I guess I, my question would be how, how did you go about getting into Georgia O'Keeffe's head? Was it through looking at her art or was there some level of, um, you know, like biographies that you studied to kind of understand how she might think? Well, little of both, really. I read a lot about her art education. You know, she went to um, Columbia Teachers College when she was that, and she had some uh, wonderful professors there. There was one who used to always play music during the class. And so I guess it was that and some other things. Uh, but she, that she was taking such a visual view. But there's another thing that's very interesting with her, which is she had this, well, I don't want to call it an affliction. I think I should call it a gift, this um, perceptual anomaly, I guess, which is called synesthesia. Oh, right. Yeah, so she was one of these persons who could hear music and colors would come to her. Mm -hmm. Or she'd see colors and music would come to her. She loved Pablo Casals, so she often had his records on. Hence the Santa Fe Opera. Yes, <laughs> exactly. So I, I just, you know, thought that was really interesting, and sort of that's sort of how I did it. But I have a question for you. I think what Anna did was such a high wire act to have an unreliable narrator. And I don't want to give away too much. But you did that with such grace. And I, I you know, and, and it's not like you're plotting out, well, when is she going to be unreliable and when is she going to be reliable? Uh, <laughs> it's like, when is her head going to clear? And uh, I, I just thought that was amazing. and. Um, all day long I've been trying to think of this, but 20 years ago I read a wonderful novel by a well-known English author whose name I cannot remember, except his first name was Ian. He, it was turned into a wonderful movie. Uh, Ian McEwen. Yes. Ian McEwen, yeah. <laughs> and, and about the girl who witnessed Atonement, the, yeah. Atonement, Yay. yeah. So you, you and he are on the oh, same wow. level in my head. Well, that's one of the nicest things anyone's ever said to me. I love Ian McEwen. <laughs> yeah, I do too. And I, just, I thought, God, she's doing it. And he did it because I couldn't remember who he was. Yeah. So. That's wow, wonderful. Yeah. You just proved that in, as you age, you don't actually forget stuff. It's the retrieval systems. <laughs> well, <Yeah. that laughs> we are actually just like computers. It happens to me all the time. And many of you who are regulars are trained when I go like this to start looking at your phone in order to tell me what it is. Yeah. But, you know, if you'd really forgotten it, it would never come back. Yeah, I guess that's yeah. true. And so I, I feel like, as you know, your hard drive needs to be, you know, cleaned up, but we can't do that. So um, it's, it's comforting to know that, you know that you will eventually remember. Yeah, it'll come. But it'll thank you very much, Anna, yeah. for, for doing Ian McEwen. Wow, that's a real compliment. Yeah, I love him. He's he's such a good writer. And the movie was just as good as the book, and that doesn't often happen. Yeah. So, Anna, what, Anna, sorry, what are you working on next? I mean, this is a hard act to follow, and it's been so <laughs> successful. Is that a little scary? It's definitely scary. It's more than a little scary, <laughs> because I've gotten, um, you know, I've gotten some great reader responses, and, and so now I feel like I definitely don't want to let people down, and I want to write something that... Um, you know, does does as well in, in terms of 
like finding its readers. So the next book I'm writing is another thriller. Um, it's probably going to be scarier than this one because I have a better grasp of that, of those tropes and those tools of, of thriller writing. Um, I don't want to say too much about it yet because I haven't told really anyone but my husband and a few other people about it. Um, but but it's, it's kind of a, in a similar vein tonally. Sounds exciting. Yeah. Wow. So here's the thing that happens to you when you are a first novelist. You've had really forever to write your book because okay. only husbands or whatever it yeah. is. Now you're working at it, so no pressure, right? But then you publish your book and your publisher is going, where's the next book? And it's yep. due and whatever. <laughs> and it's it makes it the hardest for most people. The second book is the hardest book to write because oh, yeah. you have to go from <laughs> I have all the time in the world and nobody knows so if it's really awful you know it'll be all right etc to yeah a whole different world where you're on a time schedule people have expectations good for you yeah. you know <laughs> you work through it um that's that's wonderful did you have that happen I mean you you've written primarily children's books but the dynamic will be the same yeah 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 I mean I've written so many books, but... Um, but do you I, remember the second book? Was it hard? The second book? <laughs> I remember the second book. The first book was a picture book, and the second book was a novel. So yeah, that, uh, so I switched horses, so to speak. Okay. You know, I went from, as I said, uh, 100-word books to, um, you know, 50,000-word books for middle grade so and that was yeah that was hard I I thought hey I can't put in pictures here I have to <laughs> write the pictures <laughs> and so you know, you'll be pleased to know that there are actually some new adult thrillers coming out where pictures are part of the story really I will I will have to reckon book by Jason Recolek which is one of my favorite books last year the entire character and dialogue of the little girl in the book is the drawings that she makes and as they progress through the book you get to know more and more about her and the end reveal is in fact her drawing but they're very childlike drawings i mean they're not oh, you know wow it's fabulous i just love that book and i'm hoping hidden pictures huh hidden pictures is yes that? thank oh, yeah. you very much that is it the, their dialogue is uh, see i just had a moment where i couldn't remember the title <laughs> Anna, once again, <laughs> saves the day. Um, it is called Hidden Pictures, and everyone else has a, you know, talks through the book in regular prose and all, but this little girl, that's how you get to know her. So there's hope for you. You may be able to sort of combine. But I don't draw. Did he do the drawings? I don't know. You know, it's a really oh. good question. I, I think he probably did, but um, believe me, you could draw them. They're, they're, they're almost like... Yeah, they're almost like stick well, figures, aren't yeah. they? Did you read the book? I have not read the book, but my husband read the book, and he told me about Speak this. Speak out. Don't yeah. you love it? Now, wait a minute. It's called and Hidden, hidden pictures. pictures. Hidden right. Pictures. Yeah. I mean, that last picture just stops your heart, doesn't it? I know. It was like, oh, my God, there she was all along. Really fabulous. Okay. I'll send you look. an email so you can find yeah. the book. Yeah. Because we're always sold out of it. It doesn't seem to matter how often I mention it. Oh, great. But it's great. Anyway, I, is Georgia going to come back, or is this a one-off? No, she's coming back. Oh, good. Wonderful. So we didn't even talk about the plot. Um, and we could briefly say, you could briefly say what? Well, she goes out there to heal herself. <laughs> and about no, the, that's not the plot. That's not what happens. So what happens is, practically the first week she's out there, she goes out um, and she discovers a dead body in the desert. And um, it, it's, I can tell, an, it's, it's a body of a Franciscan priest, or appears to be. He's dressed in the garb. And, um, you know, she runs back and reports it in. And then they come out, and she has to lead the cops there. There's this one kind of strange thing that shows up, which is he had a, his car's out there, too. And he had a suitcase with him. And in the suitcase are um, some unpriestly accoutrements. Uh, that was very delicate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, a Beretta gun and uh, a package of condoms. So, right. so, yeah. <laughs> so they're going to try and um, solve this 
murder, and then a couple of other people dropped dead. Now, out what there. you've done is a variation on the unreliable narrator. What we have is an unreliable victim. Yes. <laughs> that's a whole new genre. I yes. really, that's really great. It's it truly, um, as I said, you have to remember it's the 1930s when you when you read it. So that has we don't want to say any more than that. But um, there there's a lot. Northern New Mexico is a really fascinating. Many people. I mean, over the years we lived in New Mexico, we have seen people say, like, what's the currency? Or do yeah. I need a passport? Yeah. Or, you know, I mean, it is a really world apart in, in lots of ways. And yeah. very, um, very Hispanic, very Catholic. And so the priest, you know, would, would not be surprising that he was there. It would be surprising what they find him with. Yeah, yeah. They didn't get license plates in New Mexico until the 1930s, I think. That could easily be. Yeah. Yeah. Well, New Mexico was right behind Arizona. It was the 47th state, thanks to the Gadsden Purchase from Mexico, finally. And Arizona was the 48th. So it was like 1910, I think. So it hadn't been a state all that long. No. Was it 12? I, I believe you. Absolutely. <laughs> So, so you're right about the license plates, and they have a very flexible policy because the Santa Fe Opera, which I've mentioned several times before, has a great gift shop. And so I went into the Santa Fe Opera gift shop a few years back and was struck and instantly purchased the license plate, bright yellow, red letters, and said, Diva. <laughs> and I put it on my car, the front of the car, whenever I went to pick up authors at the Valley or whatever the valleys, I mean, they just put the car out front. It was like I had a Rolls. Um, they always knew who I was. And then I got a new car. I got a Mercedes, and there's no front license plate holder. And oh. my Diva license plate sits in my office, and every once in a while I think I'm just going to hammer it into the hood. <laughs> but it was so much fun. But yeah. they have a very freestyle. It's called the Land of Enchantment for a reason. Um, but they have a very loose interpretation of many things. So what fun to write about it. Yeah, it was. I love it. So questions from the audience. What would you all like to ask? Husbands? <laughs> two of them here. This is really a first. I can't remember we've ever had two husbands here. Yes, sir. I do have a question for Kathy. Oh, good. <laughs> Were there any lessons that you learned from writing children's books that you could apply to writing a book like Light on Bone, which is obviously a very different genre? Very different. And I suppose there were lessons, but the biggest lesson of all that I learned is this is totally different. Everybody was saying, sort of thinks, oh, now you're writing for grown-ups so you can have booze and sex <laughs> and all of that. And that wasn't it at all. When you're writing for children, it's a different perspective. Children are always looking ahead. You know, middle grade YA, that's what I write a lot. Um, and, you, you know, the, those characters are can't wait to wear lipstick or drive a car or have sex. The uh, perspective in an adult book is retrospective. You're looking back at chances missed or wishing maybe you'd done one thing or another. And that just casts a whole different light over the whole experience of writing, because I'm old. <laughs> and, uh, so, and my characters are, you know, they're grown up. They've either succeeded or not, but it's just very different. Yeah. Wow, that is such an interesting thought. Last week, Kate Alice Marshall was here, and she too was a young adult writer who had written her first adult thriller. And we had a, a discussion about it because I asked her if you were writing, you know, children versus adult, if language was going to be the difference, if you had to be, you know, write different prose. And she said, no, it was the choice of story. And she sort of said what you said. Yeah, yeah. Language isn't that different. No, that, that's, that was, it, she said it was really about the choice of stories for younger authors. I mean, sorry, younger readers, rather yeah. than simplifying the prose or something. So that was a great question. Thank you for asking and a great Thank answer. You. you bet. All right, other husband. Yeah, but I don't want to give away anything about that. So that's why I didn't talk oh, about it. <laughs> yeah. We have yeah. to quash this husband. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yes, sir. Way over there. 
Well, that's uh, a good question, and, and, and I didn't recognize you at first. Um, this, so part of it was, so um, we were actually in a workshop together at Santa Monica College where I teach, um, and it was a workshop that I uh, actually audited for probably six years. I don't know how long, how long you were in it. Um, but there are people in the class who have been there for decade, for at least a decade, maybe two. Um, so that was really helpful to to writing a first draft was to have this community that I could stop in every Wednesday and either listen to somebody read or read my own story and to just have this community that I could, they knew what I was doing, I knew what they were doing. Um, so that really helped keep me going and also having a writer's group. Um, the, uh, I'm sorry, that was that, what was the question again? <laughs> Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. I it was really tough because I thought it was done <laughs> at one point and then I showed it to our workshop leader Jim Crusoe who's one of, you know, my favorite writers and I respect everything he has to say about writing. So he took a first a look at the what I thought was the first complete draft. And he liked some parts of it, but he also just had written um, brackets around entire scenes and chapters. And if anyone who knows Jim Crusoe, when he writes a bracket, the first time he wrote a bracket around any of my writing, I was like, what does this mean? And he means you can cut everything oh. in the brackets. <laughs> um, so that was, that was a little bit scary when he wrote so many brackets in the first draft and his advice was um you know keep going but like you've got a long way to go so so I I, I kept writing and eventually I found her, an agent who was um herself originally a writer so she's very very tuned in to the writing and to the to the whole to everything about it the plot and she also said um you know I like what you've got here you've got a good sort of central mystery but I think you should start again. <laughs> so I then spent almost two years working with her off and on because it was a little bit discouraging at first. I took some time off, but off and on I spent um, almost two years with her working on that. And then we sold it. And even then there was more to be done. So um, today if I pick it up, I can still find things that I wish I could change. So I don't really know if you're ever done. <laughs> it's only when they tell you you can't make another change that, that you're done. But, but if it was up to me, I'd still be editing. You have a lot in common with Jeffrey Deaver. Some of you have been here many times will remember this, but Jeffrey actually stood here one day when somebody asked him that same question, and he said if they would let him, he would hang by his heels from a trapeze over the press while it was running <laughs> and continue to edit his book. Yeah. So, you know, um, many authors don't ever go back and read their earlier books because, as you say, yeah. they want to fix them. Does that happen to you? Um, no, because you've already written 20 revisions, so... Yeah, <laughs> I, I just don't go back and read my books. I just, I guess maybe there is a fear that I'll find something that I won't like or shouldn't have done, but when I'm done, I'm done. Yeah, but theoretically, as every book you write, you advance slightly, you know, yeah. in your craft, and so, you know, if you go back to the very beginning, it's not going to be as skilled as, as later. Yeah. Yeah, probably. So, good point. But I yeah. haven't come back. Yeah. <laughs> well, here's the thing, because I've edited, I don't remember how many hundreds of books before we sold Poison Pen Press, and there, there are two things that an editor is always looking for, because a writer is writing over a period of time, and you know, you start and you stop, and you start and you stop. So the first thing you look for are the repetitions, those oh, things yeah. that you've already said, as this is an editor, because if you read it all at once, it's a lot easier to see that. Sure. So, you know, most people understand that there's stuff that needs to be cut out. But I found the more interesting problem was I would get to something and then I would say to the author or write to them more often, what is happening here? What are you thinking about? And they would tell me. And then I would say, well, then why didn't you write it into the book? Because what happened is it was in the, the author's head, but it didn't make it on the page. Oh, so yeah. it, it's a push-me-pull you. You know, part of it is taking out stuff that doesn't need to be there, but some of it is, you know, deepening, amplifying, or, mm -hmm. you know, 
adding in stuff that will improve the book. Is that what goes on with you when you are constantly doing drafts and that's kind of that process? Yeah. What you take out and then what you put in? Yeah, yeah. And um, so I'm on this draft 10 now. And um, I've, I've just, it's good to take a few days away from it. And then I think, you know, back there in that chapter when that thing happens, I need to cut that off. And it's a perfect place to go a little bit deeper and find, you know, what I found, like when I said the thing uh, in a George O'Keefe letter where she said I could have eaten that dirt. Mm -hmm. And I think that's that's the kind of thing I find in a in a, in a second or twentieth draft that there is always a point that can be where you can say hold up the telling of the story and well show don't tell but just dive a little deeper emotionally and put the, then the the reader will go to that moment too and I I bet you know maybe they identify with it the uh, the thing is. The other day I was thinking, yeah, this is supposed to be really scary, and it's not that scary right now. And I thought, uh, I know what I could do here. I could have, has anybody ever experienced um, sleep paralysis? It is the strangest, weirdest thing in the world. It's not something, I think it's only happened to me a few times, and I don't know why. But and your eyes are wide open, yeah. And you're scared to move, yeah. You think you're just going to make your world fall apart. I thought I, not that I like revisiting those moments, but I, I thought I gotta have a sleep paralysis moment here, and that's my, and then just end the chapter on that. Wow, a real cliffhanger. Yeah. Yeah. Are you taking notes? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I, there's something so scary about it um, because you, it's like you can't move. You cannot yeah. move. It, is, it really is. It's like the ultimate terror. Yeah. So you said you're making your book scarier. Can you give us one example of something you've done that's making it scarier? I think I'm weaving in the foreshadowing in the beginning as opposed to, um, for me with this book, foreshadowing, most of the foreshadowing about the twist came in later drafts because once I had the twist, there was this um, sense of I need to make sure that there's little breadcrumbs leading up to the twist because the last thing you want is a twist that feels random. You know, and when something happens and the reader's like, who, like, where did this come from? That's not satisfying. So, so it, part of my um, drafting process was shading in little moments building up to the twist that would um, sort of allow the reader to look back and say, okay, the pieces were in place for that to happen from the beginning. So I think with the next draft, I'm doing that um, right from the beginning. I'm, I'm, I know what the twist is, so I'm, I'm layering in little clues as I write. Nice. Patrick has arrived and probably means that he has questions from our online audience. Do you want a microphone? Yep. Oh. Oh. Oh, yeah. Of course. Creating your characters. Did you put any of your personal characteristics? Yeah, a lot of them. Um, I well, she's half Guatemalan. Um, some of her struggles are the are things that I've dealt with. Um, so it, originally there was a lot more autobiographical elements to her because it was my first book and I was trying to develop this character and it was just very easy to draw from my own life. But as the story went on and I got closer to the finished story, um, she became her own person. So part of the process for me of creating her was creating her and then letting her become not me. <laughs> but I think for me, the instinct was to make her autobiographical in parts um, from the start. I did not have that problem with George O'Keefe because <laughs> she definitely is not me. <laughs> so, but yes, uh, on my middle grade and YA stuff, that has happened a lot. And um, and then there there was one book that I wrote, that, fiction, and it was called Pageant, and it was totally me, <laughs> the whole thing. Yeah. yeah. Anyone else have a question? And if the ah, well, you, 
Oh, well, okay, for me, um, actually, this sounds very weird, but I get an idea, and the first thing I do is I write the jacket copy, because I figured that really tells me what this book is about. And jacket copy is what, a hundred words, if that? And so that is just a very essential thing I do, because you can... In the jacket copy, you know, you know, you got the who, you get the conflict, and all of that. You don't get the resolution, of course. Um, and then I go on, and I'm a big outliner, and I make a lot of outlines. And the first one is kind of uh, rough, but it can be long. Mm -hmm. It can be two or three pages long. And, but that gets me started, and then I keep outlining um, throughout the book, and, and um, you know, the, the, and they vary in length. None of them are, are as long as the first one, but it, basically the first one's a narrative arc of the whole book. You've got your beginning, middle, and end, and then I break it down, but I, I do a lot of outlining. Are you at the other school? This is called Plotters versus Pantsers. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Right. I think for my next book, I will be a plotter, but I was not a plotter for the first for this book um, because I wasn't really sure how it was how the story was going to go. So I was kind of writing it as I went or, or, or plotting it out as I went for the very first draft. Um, my process for the first draft of this was very practical um, in that I wrote 500 words a day. I, I knew I wanted to get a draft out um, as quickly as I could because I wanted to have written a book and, you know, it was my thesis for my MFA program, so I also had a deadline So in order to graduate. Um, and I just wrote 500 words a day, however I could fit them in. And um, that was how I, I managed to get down the whole first draft. But I think for the next book, I'm going to be outlining and doing a lot of, I love this book jacket idea. I might take that and do that myself because I think that's really smart. Um, part of what I've learned about, about writing a novel is that you don't want to stray too far from your main point. Um, and I can imagine that writing a book jacket really helps you clarify what that is. And then you can kind of look at it as you're writing and keep making sure that you're staying on topic. Wonderful. Well, I want to, um, PK, did you have a question? Oh, my oh. God. Yeah. Now you've <laughs> aged yourself. <laughs> Whether that was my intention, I don't know. I just wanted to write a book about something, you know, and I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. And usually, um, you know, with the kids' books, because they, the first ones I wrote were picture books, I, I think I was visually stimulated to write a story, but then try to do it in a way that was um, very swift and um, when not too detailed, but would really would you catch. Like to mention that your husband illustrated? Yes, my husband was the illustrator. Now you can do Jason Recollect Hidden Pictures yeah. as a collaborative event. Right. Uh, I, yeah, yeah. Well, great, thank you. Great question, Pat. Pat. Pat started at the store when he was 16 years old as an intern. He's still here. Oh my <laughs> word! I know it's amazing. So oh. we love we love having him. Well, I want to thank our online audience for joining us, and I really thank all of you who came out tonight for coming. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them, and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.